Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. We're looking at the Gospel of John together during these weeks, and we come to the place in John just after Jesus raised Lazarus. It's a time when opposition to Jesus is at a fever pitch. And you may remember that the Gospel of John, the first half of the Gospel of John, is oriented around seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus performs, not so much to show us what Jesus did, as much, in John's words, to show us why he did them. And everything in the book of John is meant to push us toward faith in Christ. It's written for the believer to walk in deeper faith and repentance. And it's written for those who don't yet understand the gospel or haven't yet come to grips with who Jesus is. To understand the profound life that he lived for us and sacrificial death that he died for us who believe. And so when you come to John chapter 11, the passage that Hannah just read, you're welcomed into seeing five amazing kinds of people. Five groups of people. Have you, ever, have you ever found yourself just people watching? 
Like, have you ever found yourself just being absorbed in an environment where you just get to watch people's reactions? Like, have you ever wondered what it's like to be a physician and see all kinds of different patients or ever wondered what it's like to be a counselor and to be, like, let into the inner sanctum of a person's soul as counselors see client after client? Well, John, in a sense, invites all of us to be counselors. He invites all of us to see these five groups of people, which we're going to look at over the next two weeks. The five groups of people are the cautious, they are the um, conspiratorial, or they're the calculating, we might call them. They're the curious, they're the committed, and they're the counterfeit. I couldn't help myself. They all alliterate, but they all make sense. They come out of the text. And this week, we're going to look at three of those people. We're going to look at the cautious, we're going to look at the calculating, and we're going to look at the curious. And children, if you are old enough to read, would you be willing to go and get your Bible? Adults, I assume that you have yours there, but if you don't, would you go get your Bible? You can punch pause on the tape, on the video, and... Go and get your Bible and resettle so that we can look at God's Word together. And children, I want you, I want you to listen for three words this morning. The first word I want you to listen for is tattletale. Then I want you to listen for the word Sanhedrin. And lastly, I want you to listen for the word balcony. Tattletale, Sanhedrin, and balcony. And if you need more time to go and get your Bible, punch pause and run and get those. At this place in John, as we get to John chapter 11, there's one more chapter, John chapter 12, that tells a period of time that covers at least two years. And then from chapter 13 all the way until the end of John, the second half of the book of John, slows way down as though you're trimming a video on your camera and you get to the part you want to trim and all of a sudden it goes really slow. And it covers just those last six days. And so we're coming to the fever pitch of opposition to Jesus. And we see that these five groups of people, the first three of which we're going to look at this morning, respond to Christ in different ways. How do they do that? Well, let's look at the text together. First, the cautious. The cautious come to us in verse 45 down through verse 46. Listen, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, that is Mary's friends, and had seen what, she, what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, these are friends of Mary. Now, Mary, in Scripture, had lots of friends. People, people were associated with Mary. It, it's, it's, it's likely that she had a large group of friends. It's not that people didn't love Martha, her sister, but friends are drawn to good listeners, aren't they? And so it makes sense that Mary would have a lot of friends. And these friends come to comfort her at the death of her brother. And they see Jesus heal Lazarus from the dead. It's amazing. And some of them believe. Like, they get it. And they place their faith in Christ as the promised Messiah, the one who is able to conquer sin and death. He conquered death. He shows you that he does by healing a dead man, one dead for four days. But some run to the Pharisees, some tattletale on Jesus. They don't know what to do about it. They're, they're the cautious, they're the curious. 
It, it may be that they ran to the Pharisees because they were trying to convince the Pharisees that Jesus was the Messiah. He's here. Come and look at him and believe this. It may have been that they were just filled with anxiety about what to do. They didn't know what to do. They were, they, were, they were the aristocrats of the day. They were steeped in religious tradition, and they didn't want to go outside the bounds of, of what their rabbis had taught them. The Pharisees were the scribes. They were the biblical scholars of the Old Testament. It may have been that the Pharisees were, um, the, they, they, they historically, we know, were the ones who were really in touch with the common people. They were like the common, the podcasters of the day. They had, they had access to the people, and people listened to them, and they, they, they sat at their feet. And it may be that they just wanted to get their advice on what to do with Jesus. But the way John mentions this verse in Greek suggests that something more malicious is at play. He contrasts those who believe in Christ, and then he uses a very strong Greek conjunction to say, but some then ran to the Pharisees. And we can only believe that they were cautious in their approach of approaching Jesus, that, that they were fearful of following Jesus because they had other things that consumed their attention and their mind. And so they ran and they told the Pharisees. They were tattletales on Jesus. And as soon as they ran to the Pharisees, as soon as they told the Pharisees what Jesus had done, the die was cast. It takes us to the second group of people in the text. Not just the cautious, that's one group, but now we see, secondly, the calculating. Verse 47 down through verse 53 shows us what it's like to be part of a Jewish council. It says in verse 47, now the priests, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what's the council? The council here is the Sanhedrin council. Now way back in the ancient Near East in biblical times, Rome ruled over Israel, but they gave all of Jewish internal affair authority to a council they called the Sanhedrin. And the the Pharisees in themselves had no real legislative authority in themselves. They had to present it to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a large council of men, 70 in all, that were primarily made up of Sadducees. That is a sect of people who were deeply concerned with maintaining a Jewish way of life, although they varied widely in their theological um, positions. And in the Sanhedrin, there was a small minority called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a minority together with the elders of the city and with some of the uh, aristocratic landowners. Uh, And together, they were called the Sanhedrin. And it says in the text, doesn't it, it says that they met together and they're asking the very practical question, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with him? What are we to do with this man? For this man performs many signs. It was obvious. It's obvious that this man has an incredible person and that people are flocking to him by the hundreds and thousands to follow him. If we let him go, their logic suggested, then everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now listen, listen to that language. They will come and they will take away our place and our, lang- and our nation. In other words, 
If we let Jesus go like this, our identity, our status, our source of security is going to be crushed. The attention won't be on us. He'll steal away the authority. And so they meet together, and this is the problem they're discussing and they're thinking about together. What do we do with Jesus? How do we maintain our place and our nation? And in the midst of the council, there was one who stands up, Caiaphas. Um, Caiaphas was the high priest who ruled from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. He was a well-known son-in-law, the high priest Annas, who had ruled earlier from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. Annas cast a long shadow over the high priests. In um, the Old Testament, you may know that a high priest was um, appointed to be high priest for his entire life, but High priests, by the time Jesus came, were really political footballs. They held the position only for a certain period of time, and quite frankly, their theology didn't really matter a lot. It was what was politically expedient for the time. So Annas was a high priest, and then later Caiaphas was a high priest, and they would be, they were expendable. In fact, um, um, Valerius Gratus was the Roman prefect who, who appointed Caiaphas to be the high priest. And um, Valerius, Gratus, and Caiaphas were both fired on the same day in AD 36. These were just positions of authority and power. They had less to do with theology and more to do with politics by the time Jesus came around. And the one who appointed Caiaphas, just a little history, was replaced by a name that you all know. Valerius Gratus appointed Caiaphas, and he was replaced, of course, by another Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. And so here we are in the midst of the Sanhedrin, a place that's meant to give wisdom to Israel, a, a place that's meant to study God's word and to know it. And they're filled with people who have long left their Jewish theological moorings. And they're just thinking about their place. They're just thinking about their nation, our place, our nation. And they're calculating in their resolve on how they are to get rid of Jesus. And, and notice that it says um, not the Sanhedrin singular, but it says, verse 53, that they made plans. They, they made plans. It was, it was a remarkable thing for the Jewish council, divided as it was between a majority Sadducee and a minority Pharisee, to ever agree on anything. But here they're united. It says they, not the Sanhedrin singular, but they. They came together. Why? Because Pharisees and Sadducees came together. And it's interesting that in all of their disagreements all throughout history, here they completely are united and they agree on one thing. We must do something about Jesus because he is destroying our way of life. He's offending our sensibilities. He is stepping on our toes, and we are losing our status and our influence. And into this context, can you imagine it there? 70 men thinking together about what to do with Jesus. Rises Caiaphas, the high priest, and his argument goes something like this. He says, you do not understand that it is better for us, it is better for us to execute this man than for our nation to be executed. 
Don't you know it's better for you for one man to perish than for you to lose all that we've worked so hard to accomplish together? I mean, look around. The entire Jewish nation, we control all of Jewish eternal affairs. And it would be far better for us to put this man away, to put him away, to execute him, to kill him, so that we can continue to lead and guide according to our own agendas. And I don't know about you, but when I read about the the calculating nature of Caiaphas and all of the Sanhedrin, I think about my own heart. I think about the times that Jesus has asked things of me that would come at great threat to my own status, whatever that might be, my own sense of security, my own place, my own name, my own position, my own nation. How about you? Has the Holy Spirit ever asked you to give up something that cost you something significant? Like, has he ever asked you to to trust him in obeying his word without condition in a way that was fearful for you? Has he ever ever called you to, to come to grips with who he is in a way that seems so offensive that you begin to calculate how you can somehow weasel out of obeying God's word? Well, if that's you, then you're calculating. Just like, just like I am in some areas of my life and continue to walk in repentance. I struggle in some areas, and I, and I want you to enter into the struggle in your own life together too. These members of the Sanhedrin were calculating, and they were so calculating that anonymity for the glory of God was not worth sacrificing their self-security. In other words, Anonymity for the glory of God was too high of a cost for them. But what if God is actually asking that of us? What if the Lord is actually saying, what Jesus asks of you is for you to be utterly anonymous, even, even potentially forgotten in history, for the sake of the glory of King Jesus? And there are some who are listening for him, that's just too much. You're about legacy. You're about a name. You're about establishing a sense of control. And when the Lord asks you to be able to walk in truth, as Cher and Dan read earlier in our service, not in, not in drunkenness, but to walk in sobriety, to be able to walk in love toward your neighbor, those things come at too great a cost. Friends, it is not... It is not um, the executioner's guillotine. It is not the rope. It is not the persecution that threatens us these days. It is not the outright opposition to the gospel that threatens us, at least not in the world that I live in. But you know what it is? It's a thousand paper cuts along the way where we slowly begin to compromise our commitment and we calculate how can I remain in control? How can I, how can I, How can I somehow weasel my way out from under the influence of Jesus to maintain my place, my nation? That's what you see in the calculating, the second group of people. And that brings us to the third group of people, the curious. You see it in verse 55 and verse 56, and you see it again in chapter 12 and verse 9 through 11. 
It says, when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, for you Bible scholars out there, you may know that this is the third Passover that John mentions, which means that John is recounting at least two years of Jesus' public ministry to this point, isn't he? Passover 1 becomes 0, and then Passover 2 becomes 365, and then Passover 3. It's two years. So at least he's covering two years of Jesus' public ministry. And here there are people who are coming into town to purify themselves under Old Testament law so that they can come and partake of the Passover. If you touched a dead body, for example, the, the Torah, the Old Testament law, gives very strict and clear instructions on how you are to prepare to come to Passover clean. And so they, were, they had to go through ritual purification. And the curious, it says in verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, that is, they stood in church, they came to church, what do you think? Do you think he'll come to the feast at all? They were thinking about him. They were looking for him. They were curious about him. It suggests in the Greek that they, they weren't wholehearted followers of Jesus, but they wanted to be, they wanted to be there. Uh, the great Baptist Charles Haddon Spurgeon calls the curious in this text the balconiers. That is, that they, they sat on the balcony. They were the ones in the back. They were in the temple. They had been circumcised, or the equivalent today. They had been baptized. They had been brought into the people of God. But they, they sat on the balcony, and they were balconiers. And they were the curious. They wanted to know about Jesus, but they weren't yet ready to commit. They were looking for him. They wanted something more, but they didn't quite know what that was. And for the balconiers at Trinity, those of you who have one foot in and one foot out, for whom attendance is optional in coming to worship, you come when, you're con when it's convenient, you, you, you commit to a community group when and it suits your needs, you sacrifice your time and your talent and your treasure whenever it's under your conditions and not under the unconditional call of God. Like, if that's you, then it, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Like, it's frustrating to be a Christian and be a balconier, somebody who's kind of watching from a distance, who has conditions on their faith. I want to know more about Jesus. He has to meet me in certain places. I'll obey him in some areas, <laughs> but I'm holding back in others. It's frustrating. And it, you become, like, spiritually constipated or stopped up or like you're frustrated and you don't know why and you're frustrated because you're, you're, um, you're obeying Jesus in some areas which means that you're not really able with abandon to follow him and receive the joy of intimacy and running to obey him no matter what his call is upon your life. You're missing the joy of obedience because you're holding back because of certain conditions. But at the same time, you are obeying a little bit. And so you're not just able to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin either. It's kind of like this, this in-between, stuck-in-the-middle kind of spirituality. And it's frustrating and it's exhausting. And if you're curious this morning, if you're, if you're a balconier, if you're a one-foot-in, one-foot-out kind of person, let me encourage you to come on in. To come on in. Because the invitation of the gospel is an invitation not to do more, not to perform perfectly, not to be 
perfectly blameless in righteousness in order to become like him. But it's to hear the prophecy of Caiaphas that he unintentionally spoke of earlier. Did you hear what he said? Caiaphas said, you know that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John commentates on this in verse 51. He says, he did not say this on his own accord. He didn't really mean to say this as we are going to hear it as Christians. But being the high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The call of the gospel is a call that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. It is the call that even Caiaphas, the high priest, didn't mean to say, but Jesus came and he died. He perished for the sake of the people, for the sake of the nation. And the early church used this language to call themselves his people, to call themselves the holy nation, to call themselves spiritual Israel, because they who place their faith in Christ are his people, are his nation, they're his. And so, this morning, would you consider the conditions upon your life that you've put in place, that you somehow require Jesus to meet before you obey him? Do you require him to secure a place for you, a place of status, to maintain your popularity or your hegemony or your financial accounts or whatever it is? What is our place? What is your place? Whatever your place is, is the place where your repentance needs to go. It's the thing you need to bring before the cross as an offering. And if you are, um, if you're cautious, if you're calculating, if you're curious, would you see that the atonement of Christ is the way that you find that you're most deeply satisfied? And would you be willing to stare at the cross and to see Jesus' death for you and to stare at it again and again and read this text and be able to see your place amidst these three of the five people this text shows us until you see the cross of Christ beautiful because he did die for a nation. He did perish for a people. And he invites you by faith to be numbered among those for whom he spilled his blood and extends his arms of love. Would you believe that this morning afresh? Would you see yourself in the cautious? Would you see yourself in the calculating? Would you see yourself in the curious? And would you look for Jesus? Would you run to him by faith? Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we, as we people watch, as we see in this passage these five groups of people, the first three of which we've talked about this morning, that you'd help us to find our place in those who are cautious about our faith, that we, we're hesitant to obey Jesus because we have certain conditions. For those of us who are calculating, Lord, the risks of following Jesus, would you help us to follow you without abandon and find that our deepest souls are met when we see the atonement of Christ 
as beautiful as it is, that we don't have to work for our salvation, but we gladly give up our self-saving strategies in order to allow Christ to be our atoning sacrifice. And for those who are curious, Lord, help them to continue to look for Jesus, to look for him, to keep coming, to come to community group, to come to worship with us online, to lean into the community of our church and to find in the context of a gospel people a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. The Lamb of God who came on a Passover to take away the sins of the world. Would you encourage us this morning in this passage of John to see Christ as both beautiful and believable and to lead us in appropriate response to follow him in faith and in repentance. We pray these things in Christ's name.